Radio. It's Monday the 14th, and we have a cram-packed show for you. First up today, Raja Singh will be talking about his AI business that does B2B negotiations. Dan Breezy is then going to talk about his almost $400 million real estate portfolio and teach us how he built it. And then Joe Meyer will be with us to talk about AI meeting NLP. Big show. Let's get started right now. I'm very excited to introduce my first guest. His name is Raja Singh. He is running a fascinating company that's using AI to make negotiations and the sale better. You know how we have so many people we have to close, so many gatekeepers, and they all want an impact. Imagine using the power of AI to make that goes more smoothly. I'm excited to hear about it. The name of the company is Revo Lear. He had a very, a very impressive background prior to this. He has been with Salesforce, uh, Cybol company before it was acquired and a whole bunch of other industry or really cool companies throughout his career. He is also giving back and it looks like he's running some cool things, including a kids hangout type venue based around music raja very impressive career welcome to the show jim thanks so much hey, congratulations to to you and your success you've had it is uh you know tough to basically build a franchise like you have and keep it running for this amount of time and congrats for moving to uh the podcast arena and the radio arena well thank you we're excited to be on 60 stations that's uh our KPI. And so, um, I'm excited about that number. Raj, let's start off talking a little bit about Revolier. Am I describing it right? AI to make negotiations close faster. How, how am I doing? That's right. I mean, that's a great description, Jim. You know, most of the that's large... trademark, by the way, I'm filling out the trademark <laughs> uh, right now. We'll take you up on that. You know, most, uh, even though you hear about e-commerce, we all use Amazon and it's clear that there's more and more transactions that are being done online, but there's still the bulk of the business to business transactions, the kind of relationships that make corporations go, uh, are still being deals that are structured by humans, negotiated by humans and closed by, by humans. And so Revelier hopes to bring the gap, close the gap, if you will, between the things that humans need to do and the things that the machines can help them do. And ways like identifying the right structures to put in a deal, uh, to help draft the right text so you can hit all the points needed for the various stakeholders, uh, and even automate some of the main mundane approvals that frankly are almost rubber stamps, but still need to be done manually today. And so we think there's a you know an opportunity to kind of bridge the chasm between transactions that are purely automated and online, between those negotiated by humans, but provide the ones that humans do with a little bit of AI assistance. Can you walk us through an example? 
Sure. You know, a classic, um, let's take, for instance, a software sale, the business that I'm in. Uh, on the surface, most software sales are pretty straightforward. You may say, okay, I'm going I'm to buy this software for a year. It's going to be 100 bucks per user per month. Let's go throw it on your credit card and do it online. But for most corporations that have 100, 500, 1,000, 2,000 um, employees that they're buying the software for, the transaction becomes a lot more complex. They're asking for things like special provisions for the uptime guarantees, additional levels of support, maybe some provisions for certain modules that they want to get for free in exchange for making a larger purchase. And the sales team may say, well, let's do it for a longer period of time, but I'll give you a better deal. And so those are just a few examples of the levers that get negotiated and pushed uh, to bring a large transaction uh, to pass. All those require approvals uh, internally and from the buyer. And some of those may be driven by kind of unique personalities on the buyer side. And as the seller, you're like, well, you know, this guy on the cloud operations team, he's got this hang up. So I need to do something specific to get him on board. What's it going to be? And how do I get that approved? Those are all examples of where the technology has an opportunity to assist. And pre prior to Revelier, most of this has just been done through, you know, emails, through writing up redline Word documents, doing analysis in Excel, et cetera. And we think there's an opportunity there. All right. And so would the AI actually have sign off of, of, of powers or would it suggest uh, yeah. how to negotiate or does it suggest what the deal should look like? Yeah, there's AI actually sprinkled throughout the solution. And, and AI is, a, of course, a category of technologies, not just a single technology. And so it could begin up front using things like the chat GDP, large language models, to take the customer's requirements and synthesize, let's say, a long RFP. We use machine learning models, things like neural networks, to identify basically the right starting discount based on other comparable deals. As you get into negotiation, you may use uh, AI to craft the right executive summaries. In the past, executive summaries, you know, they're hard to write. You do them manually. With AI assisting you, you may be able to write a tailored executive summary to each individual job function within the decision-making unit. Uh, and then to your point on approvals, if there's things like, um, you know, extending the payment terms from 30 to 60 days or, um, you know, extending the support hours, and there's a track record for those type of decisions, then you can use machine learning to automate those so that really doesn't need to delay any of the uh, any of the people working on the deal. You can just get that done. So there's different types of technologies used in different ways throughout the sales cycle. And we, you know, we started this expedition by making sure that we built our platform in a way that the data and the user interface could actually uh, play well with the, that type of AI. Because, you know, there's going to be additional forms of AI a year from now that we don't even know about uh, that we'll need to plug into this platform as well. All right. And so this is one side, right? Only one side of a deal would use this to make their part of the, their uh, sales go better, to craft a better deal, to have a better closing summary, all of the the pieces, right? And then the other side, do they know that they're being AI'd? Do you tell them that? How do you yeah. deal? I mean, is that part of the sales point? <laughs> this deal's really good because AI put it together. <laughs> I, you know, we haven't tried that. That may be actually a good idea. We could add our little AI branding stamp to these things to make the buyer uh, either a little more excited or a little more nervous. I'm not sure which. Um, but no, there's two sides to your, your question. 
historically, most sales technologies that have been developed, and I still put Revelier within the category of a sales technology, um, have been one-sided. They've been solely focused on uh, the selling entity who is uh, you know, proposing the deal. Um, we actually think Revelier is a little bit different because we're making this a two-sided platform. Uh, our vision for the company over the long haul is it becomes the preferred way for both sides of the equation to negotiate a deal, not just the seller side. And the way that manifests itself is in, um, you know, in addition to the internal application that you use to structure the deal and get your approvals, there's a customer facing portal, if you will, that digitizes what would normally be a PDF proposal. And that gives the buyer the opportunity to, um, you know, add feedback, add thumbs ups and thumbs down, ask questions. Now, where does AI come in for them? Well, there's a lot of routine questions like, hey, can you tell me about this product? Can you send me a data sheet? Can you clarify this term? That actually AI in the form of a little bot can actually knock out uh, much more expeditiously than even having the salesperson respond. So I don't think that the buyer is going to, to know that, the, for instance, the discount rate was recommended by AI or, or maybe the, the introduction to the uh, executive summary was written by AI. But they will have the opportunity to interact with the proposal more directly and do it in an asynchronous basis um, you know, after they receive that invitation to the portal. Raja, let me ask just a really stupid, basic question. You know, when I send out a sales proposal or a sponsorship proposal or something, I mean, I always start with the last thing that I put together and modify, right? Isn't that the way everyone else does it? It is the way everybody else does it. And, you know, you bring up an awesome point because that was one of the motivators uh, for starting Revelier. You know, that starting with the last version you did is really just a form of kind of what I would call tribal knowledge. You tend to have little pockets of knowledge and you just keep repeating those things. Maybe that sample you got from a colleague or your boss, or maybe it's just one that you've worked up over time. <clears throat> We've structured Revelier on the notion that you can have certain solution models, so certain reproducible patterns that you use. But importantly, each one of those patterns is optimized by the artificial intelligence underneath the covers. So you may start with the, the, the standard version of that proposal that you copy every time, but then AI influences by recommending the right discounts, recommending certain provisions, uh, and again, helping you craft the ideal uh, introductory paragraph, for instance, that aligns to the customer's requirements. So it's a form of doing exactly what you've been doing, but it's doing it with a lot more scale and with the support of a large amount of data underneath the covers. Yeah, I have not done that yet. Just dump a whole proposal into GPT and say, here are the four changes I need, uh, spit it back. I have done things like I, I sent, I, I asked for a top five list and it came back with a top seven list and they were all good. And I was like, wow, this one's really impressive. And then I did another thing where I was, I gave it a whole paragraph and I said, make this paragraph you know, more customer oriented. And it came back with the exact same thing that I had typed in and gave me not a single change. So I'm finding GPT is hit or miss sometimes great. Sometimes just like talking to my uncle. <laughs> well, you probably got a pretty sharp uncle because it, it's good a, a fair amount of the time. But, you know, there's a, a saying that Microsoft coined, which I think is, uh, you know, I won't claim credit for it, but I think it's a good one, that uh, AI in this form is a co-pilot, not an autopilot. And so it's there to help you. It's there to refine things. 
There may be times that it doesn't improve upon what you do. There may be times that it makes it a lot better. There may be times that you want to do three versions and you don't feel like typing it all out and it knocks out a couple of them for you. Um, and, you know, we're in the early stages of this. You know, when we started this company, we had planned on using things like neural networks and machine learning to improve some of the, the terms. <clears throat> but, you know, chat GDP was announced basically at the same time that we were, um, you know, getting our funding and getting going. So there's still, you know, we are still in the, the very early stages of about how to best apply this and how to get the most out of it. All right. Raj, can I be honest? Shoot. I think one of the most overrated companies on earth is one of the places you used to work. I don't get it. Their product is so complicated. There's a whole industry around making that product usable by common human beings. You know what I'm talking about? Well, I could probably guess that Salesforce is probably one of the most recognizable ones on my, uh, on my resume. It, it's a tough, you know, I mean, have you heard, uh, I mean, have small business people told you how hard have, that Salesforce is to use that? I mean, it's not designed for us small business people. Maybe that's a place to start. <clears throat> I think that's a fair assessment. And, uh, you know, I no longer work at Salesforce. I know, um, I know, I know. I, I'm I, holding <laughs> you accountable for that. I'm not. What sure. I'm saying, though, is that th this, this, Raja, if there was an AI solution that did the same sort of thing that Salesforce does tracking how many times I've talked to this guy and what we said last time and that kind of stuff that that is the sort of way that I see B2B really being improved by AI is on in that part of the world or, or the, yeah. the, what are, what are your thoughts on what I've said? Well, I, you know, I, I started working in the CRM industry, uh, back in 1998 with Siebel systems, Salesforce eventually replaced uh, Siebel as kind of the market leader in that, in that area. And the premise on which the systems were built was sales leaders didn't really have any visibility to what was going on within their teams. So they needed a tool for all their teams to consistently just log activities and keep track of data so the management knew what was going on. I would say that the, the, the fundamental thing that's happened within the industry is that's no longer a primary objective. You know, most of the customer's activity is happening with how the customer engages on your website and in your social media channels and in and around basically your sales calls. There's now different mechanisms to get all that data. Customer data platforms are, are managing the website clicks. There's conversational AI tools that are recording sales calls to analyze what happens there. So the whole premise of the platform has kind of moved on. Um, we're kind of... Um, building Revelier in a way that we help the salesperson do the work, not just track the work. And that phrase is one that I've used for a number of years now, because I think that's what people expect from technology. It's not just, what do I need to put into it so my management gets the right report? It's basically, how can it do the job that takes me more time to do and do it faster and do it better? Um, so we, we have a different view. And then let the management uh, know that I did it. Correct. Correct. I mean, there's a lot of those things that are reporting that you now get as a byproduct. Like when people, for instance, in our environment, if they log in and, and add comments to a proposal, uh, the salesperson doesn't need to report that event to management. The system already gives them that in a dashboard. So they know which proposals across their broader team are getting customer attention and getting customer buy-in. Right. That does sound exciting. You know, that to me makes my world easier. So... 
It does. I mean, the other the other challenge that you have with Salesforce is that uh, it's just a very broad. You know, it's there's a there's a penalty to being big sometimes, a penalty to being a market leader, and that the platform gets pulled in lots of different ways. You know, there's massive customers that need certain enhancements to do certain business tasks, but those enhancements may add complexity for the common user. So something with like Revelier, we're focused on a very narrow, uh, you know, type of use case, which is the the human negotiated complex sale. Um, and there are other vendors in the in the ecosystem. You know, many of our investors came from a company called Viva, which takes Salesforce and customizes or tailors it just to the pharmaceutical and life science space. And they're able to then cut down a lot of that complexity and provide something very tailored. So, you know, where Salesforce has challenges, it creates opportunities within the same ecosystem for other companies to come in and fill that gap. And, and those companies may be the better, the better choice to actually give you something that's very targeted and very easy to use. Rasha, talk to us about the birth of the business. Uh, you just raised some money, I believe. Did you need money to get started, though? Uh, walk us through the entire <coughs> negative six months all the way up through birth, and then then I'll follow up. Sure. We had actually, I, I think, a fairly... Um, uh, a fairly pleasant process of that, I must admit, because there was a group of investors, frankly, that I have known since way back in 98 at uh, my, my first software job, Siebel Systems. And these folks were all there as well. And they subsequently went out to, to found a company that I mentioned a minute ago, Viva Systems, uh, and then founded uh, my last company, Velocity, where I was the head of products. And so I had had three companies of track record with the same investor group. Uh, and so the, the funding process was relatively straightforward, uh, gave them a call and that was kind of, that was kind of it. Um, now we had done, uh, you know, a fair amount of market research. We had kind of lived the pain that we're trying to solve, uh, in our past roles. Uh, my co-founder Adam Rutland had worked with me and we had, we had built a number of, uh, successful, successful products together in our last company. So all those relationships kind of aligned very nicely to give us a, uh, you know, to get us moving. And so, you, make you know, it I think it's too if easy. Well, I think it's a, uh, you know, the way to think about it is sure the three months before the funding were easy, but it was facilitated by 25 years of relationships. Yes. Yes. Uh, and so, you know, it, it basically is if you do the legwork and you build the trust and you build the relationships over time, uh, then when something like this comes about, you're able to capitalize on it fairly readily. Where did the original so, idea come from? Uh, were you sitting down with Adam and there was a napkin in front of you that looked boring and so you scribbled on it? Yeah. Uh, well, there was actually a dinner between the two of us. We talked about some of the technology, but the core, the core business um, idea arose out of uh, me being an approver of transactions uh, at my past two companies and being asked to approve things oftentimes with very little lead time. Oh my God, we got to get this out. You got to approve it right now. Uh, and being not having the right data to approve it, not being able to do the research to get the data I needed to make a good decision. And that caused us to kind of look into the whole process of how deals were put together, where the data was stored, realizing how much data was existing outside of traditional applications, and therefore making it tough to leverage when you need to make a good decision. Uh, that then led to a conversation with Adam about, well, why is it that the data is not stored in the system? What, in the, what about the current systems makes it difficult to do that? Um, 
And can we improve on that? Can we fundamentally rethink the way we're approaching data to make it more um, easy to integrate with AI to make it make it provide better analytics so that you have the right information at the right time? What kind of food do you eat to facilitate that kind of conversation? Is that a pasta meal or is that steak and potatoes or you know it was a it was a funky little place over in oakland that had this prefix menu i remember the i remember so the setting kale salad uh we're adam and i eat sauce we're not really really kale types so there's probably some type of meat involved somewhere but it was uh, kind of fancy californian uh cuisine let's call it all right so how are you measuring the growth of this business then? Is this number of clients, is the model going to be SaaS? Yeah, it is a, uh, it's, you know, the, fundamentally it's a SaaS company. That's kind of the, the prevailing business model. Um, you know, when you get started at a company this stage, we're about uh, nine months into the operation. We have a number of customers that we've been collaborating with um, uh, as, you know, giving us requirements and pilot customer and the process is actually really, I think, straightforward. If you have no live customers, you have to get one live. And then once you've got one live, you have to get five live and then 10 and then 20. And especially in the market that we work in, the B2B space, the um, customers are basically the coin of the realm. You know, salespeople need to tell prospective customers success stories about other customers. And so the more success stories you have, the higher potential you have of being able to tell a story it's similar than the prospect story and that allows you to build momentum and so you know i view this as a very simple process of just incrementally bringing more customers online and and being able to tell those success stories and so we're you know we we launched basically our uh we publicly launched the company just a few weeks ago we're in kind of pilot ga is in um, october and it's really just that incremental focus of one by one knocking out those customer success stories and, you know, everyone gets easier. Everyone, every single one you land makes the next one a little bit easier. And it's just taking it incrementally. All right. I can't wait. I mean, you're going to take over the world, it seems like. Every, <laughs> every B2B negotiator is going to want this. Well, we want to make it easier for companies to do business together. Whether or not that involves uh, taking over the world. I'm not sure, sure, but well, it AI should make, is uh, there, so it has to take over the world. That's part of the <laughs> definition. Well, maybe we'll we'll contribute to that in some in some small way. But no, <laughs> we're we're really really excited about the uh, the prospects, and you know now is the uh, the really fun time of the venture when you, we get to take all the things we built and really test them on the marketplace. So we couldn't be more excited about it. All right, how do we find out more? Follow you online. And here Revelier.com, Revelier.com, and uh, also our LinkedIn page at Revelier. Um, and we keep both of those up to date. We'd love you to follow us. We'd love you to uh, you know, sign up for our uh, preview on the website if you're interested, uh, especially if you are out there and listening to this and have a B2B uh, sales team. We'd love to potentially uh, to chat with you a little bit more, see if it's a fit for one of our pilots. Um, we're absolutely in that stage now where we're signing up customers. Fantastic. Raja, thank you so much for being with us. Great story and really appreciate it. Jim, thanks to you. And we will be right back. We are back with an, another incredible story 
uh, another incredible entrepreneurial tale. And I'm really excited to share with you. Please welcome Dan Breezy to the show. He is co-founder of Granite Towers Equity Group. They own multifamily apartments, about 2,500 of them, worth some $400 million in that ballpark. He is author of a book called Four Steps to Successful Passive Investing and has a podcast called Keeping It Real Estate. Started off as a professional snowboarder and won a bunch of medals at the X Games and won a bunch of other cool awards from Snowboarder Magazine and things like that and transitioned successfully into entrepreneurship. Dan, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. So, wow, the prizes at the X Games are pretty good. $375 million in real estate. I didn't know they were giving out that big of a prize. <laughs> yeah, that that is not how it was in snowboarding. Snowboarding is a small uh, a small industry niche sport. It was it was a pretty good career, but the real estate was built after the career uh, has ended, and and we've been on this path now for the last decade or so. I know I'm just playing stupid. <laughs> I'm very good at that. All right. Yeah. So as you ended snowboarding. Which are the hoodlums of the ski slopes, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm old, Dan, so I'm just the, the curmudgeon <laughs> there. Uh, what were your choices? I mean, why did you decide to go into residential real estate? What were the options? How did that come about? Uh, what happened? Yeah, two reasons really was passive income, trying to create residual income where I made money regardless of what I was doing as far as work goes. And then the sad reason was just to try to, you know, pay less in tax legally. I grew up in central Minnesota, completely broke paycheck to paycheck. Parents never gave me a penny. And I worked really odd jobs to finally have my snowboarding career launch. And after the snowboarding career launched, I started to make you know decent money. And then anyway, 40, 50% of it was being taken pretty much immediately. And I was just like, gosh, I've literally spent the last 10 years risking my life working at Red Lobster, Payway, you know, um, garbage companies, landscaping companies. And then finally things start to work and all of a sudden 50% of it's being taken. So I was just thinking there has to be a better way. There has to be a way to take the cash that I was making seed money. You could call it my, my son likes to call it seed money. I've been training him up on that to take that and put it into something that would build real wealth or long-term wealth. And coming from a middle-class family, I, you know, my, parents love them and they're so supportive and they were great to help me believe in, in taking it off and going after a snowboarding career, but didn't have an, you know, you know, wealth. And so just, just was trying to solve that problem, I guess really is, is the two, the two reasons I got into real estate. And how did that happen or get started? What? So yep, you borrow yep. money from investors or tell us this. Actual no, yeah, yeah, no. So I started just on my own with, you know, I ended up saving like 50, 60 grand. And I bought a duplex and then I bought a nineplex and I kept saving money and then I bought a 24 unit deal. I was reading a bunch of books at the time, just trying to understand 
what the heck do you do with the cash you make? Because really there's two phases. You make the money and then what do you do with it? You know, do you buy a liability, which is something that goes down in value and costs you money? Or do you buy an asset that actually goes up in value and pays you money? So um, after reading maybe five or eight, 10 real estate books and listening to every podcast I could find, <clears throat> um, started to understand a little bit more about how to buy an asset and, and started to actually underwrite deals and started to go and tour deals. And so anyway, yeah, I bought a duplex, nineplex, 24 unit deal, saw the depreciation that it helped with taxes, tax savings. It's just basically depreciation is just a phantom loss or a fake loss on paper where the government allows you to show the devaluing of your property. And it's just the government and motivating people to invest their capital into real estate to take care of it. So that was part of it. And, and then I saw passive income coming in from those few properties. And I started to see residual money coming in without working. I'm still snowboarding, of course, but I'm starting to get paychecks from these three different properties. And, you know, <laughs> seeing that was eye opening for me to say, okay, wow, if you continue on this path, you can be financially free. You don't have to basically financial freedom in my mind is you have enough passive income or money coming in from, from your investments to cover your monthly expenses, which gives you freedom to be able to do more of what you want to do. I love it. And when you were buying the properties, you didn't pay a hundred percent of them, right? You were buying them with borrowed money a little bit, right? Yep. Yeah, I, I, at the be in the beginning, it was a hundred percent me. So it was my equity and me borrowing money from the bank, you know, loan to values. If I don't know if your listeners are very into real estate, probably in that 30, I was bringing 30% of the equity about or 70% of loan borrowed money. So 20 to 30% was from me. The rest was from the bank. And did that continue all the way through now? No. Yeah. So after I was doing this for, you know, three, four years on my own, one of my really good friends from Minnesota who I've known my whole life was buying a bunch of single family homes. And he and his wife came out to visit us here in Washington state. And I told him what I was doing and I suggested we buy an apartment together. It's like, Hey, maybe forget buying single family homes. Let's buy a bunch of, let's buy an apartment together. So we bought, we bought a 28 unit deal together. He, myself, and we raised capital from, from one partner on the side who was working and was doing real well and didn't have the time or focus to find these deals and manage these deals. Cause it does take a lot of time and effort. And the three of us bought that property and things went really well and we enjoyed it and the company was good and we knew each other well and decided let's start our business so in 2017 we started um our real estate firm called granite towers at pretty group late 2016 actually and what do you look for in a deal that you want to do what are the, the signs that yeah compelling Yep. When I look at our portfolio of having 20 deals now under our belt, taking, let's just call it seven to eight full cycle, meaning we either bought in and sold or we bought in and refinanced them. Um, what we're looking for, number one, is location. If you don't have a location that meets the needs of your residents and you're able to actually move the needle, and when I say move the needle, you're able to upgrade the property. So you're going to come in with money and you're going to make the property nicer. Maybe you're going to put in new kitchens and new bathrooms and new pool or new playground, stuff like that. You're going to implement that into the property and hopefully move rents up because the market allows for it. So you're looking for a location that will allow a play like that. Number two, you're looking for the right kind of debt. 
And the right kind of debt to us is low leverage fixed debt. You know, right now you're seeing a lot of challenges in the real estate market and specifically office and multifamily. And that's due to variable rate debt where your debt is not fixed. So as rates have gone up and are going up, your mortgage payment is going up much faster than your rents could ever climb. Number three is CapEx. We're looking to be able to buy a property where we can bring in a lot of liquid cash and cure deferred payments or upgrade the property like I was describing. A lot of times, the best deals are going to be deals that people that have been operating have been asleep behind the wheel or have just kind of let slide downhill. That's good bread and butter for an investment group to come in and take care of the problems, fix the problems, make the place safe for the residents. Again, you're probably going to have to evict a handful of people that are on the property that are not you know, living in a way that you need your residents to live in order to make a safe place for, for housing. And then the last piece is just great property management and asset management. Those are the four real pillars that we're looking for when we're buying a property to say, yeah, this is a go or no go. So Dan, my goal uh, here is to have thrown off a certain number. We want 10 paid for single family uh rentals for my wife in her retirement and we have several now our strategy is we want close to a college where there's going to be a fresh batch of renters every year and a starbucks what's y'all's little formula are you buying by the mountains where you can go skiing and terrorize skiers or uh, college no. towns what's the no yeah yeah no great question no we're, we're in dallas fort worth and nashville tennessee and our focus with those markets and obviously there's more intricacy with these sub markets but for us we're looking for landlord friendly states we're looking for business friendly environments we're looking for higher than average cap rates which just gives you more more cash flow and we're looking for markets that we generally like to be in and can get to in one flight. So those are really the four pieces high level. When it comes down to a little more granular, we're looking for a specific type of resident base and we're looking for a sub market that has extreme demand. So if you can find a sub market where occupancy is 95% plus in all of the competing properties, you know there's pent up demand, major pent up demand which allows us to find a property that's a little bit sluggish, come in with our CapEx, move rents to where the market should be based off of demand, supply and demand, and move the value of these apartments in a pretty big way in a relatively short period of time, allowing for all of the passive investors and us to make a nice return on their, on their cash that's sitting idle. So are you going to sell then? Are you actively trying to get in, improve, get the rents up and then churn? Yeah, it depends. Some of the assets, if it's a location where we've maxed out rents and we believe we are at the tippity top of the market and we are the definite prime, most powerful asset in that submarket, we'll probably sell and, and start fresh with another asset. If it's a deal, like we have a deal in, in Hendersonville, just, just outside of Nashville, 2016 build A-class property, a property like that, we're looking to refinance the deal, pull equity, 
which is the investor's cash tax-free and hold the deal long-term give the investors funds back tax-free they can do what they want to do with it while they still stay in the deal the things built in 2016 in a market that will grow at a steady pace for the next decade those are that's a deal where we'd refi all right what do you think about the corporate real estate problem post pandemic no one actually going to the towers anymore what are your thoughts on that are you going to be buying those towers three years from now and cramming well yeah 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 so we're not buying any office space any of the tower stuff that are we're only buying b a, a and b class apartments workforce housing is is in there as well so we're buying resident or real estate where people live like this is our home so it's, it's nothing with office or retail yeah but you know, what do you think is going to happen in that sector gosh i mean your guess is as good as mine i i'm just glad we don't own any of it i, I don't think it's going to grow you know i think you're going to see people be continue to work from home i think the pandemic changed a lot of people's habits and i think you're gonna yeah i think i think office is gonna struggle i really i really do so are you designing your apartments any differently than now it would a uh an upscale place have small office area built in yeah yeah you know we're, we're not it's not a major part of our business plan but yes on three of our assets we just built in some some offices down low we had some space at the apartment that was not being used efficiently and we reduced the gym size a little bit it was a massive gym and we put in four offices that are available for lease for for monthly lease um we did put in a workspace at another one of our properties where it's just an amenity you can sign up and use it and and and, and come in there and have a private space to run a zoom meeting um yeah, there, there's, there is definitely more of that taking place. It's definitely not the main business strategy, you know, for us that really is, is our focus, but it's part of it. How do you find deals in the first place? So what's your vetting process? Are you just scouring MLS or what are you doing? Yeah, all, all of the deals we're buying, well, I shouldn't say all, but 95% of the deals we're buying are coming from buyer brokerage services. So Marcus and Millichap, Arcadia, um, ALN. I mean, there's a lot of different CBRE firms that are selling these deals. And uh, when these deals come on market, we're doing an underwriting process through our team. And pretty much every deal that's coming on in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Nashville, we're taking a look at. We might not be taking a deep look at it but we'll do a pass on it and see if this is something that we're interested pursuing further and um and that's the way it's been done there are some off-market deals we know owners they know us you know we're in a scenario where we need to move a deal they need to move a deal and you know there's there's an agreement somehow done that that way too all right how do you go out and raise capital when you want partners for a larger how do you make that happen you, you gave an example earlier that sounded almost like serendipity yeah well, we started slow i mean you know we we started like i said nine units 24 units 28 units then we bought a 45 unit deal and we were traveling around to investor events real estate events getting out there meeting people face to face um you know all of the relationships we have we've we've generated through <clears throat> being being out of events <clears throat> and, and then word of mouth so 
excuse me, let me cough real quick. So it just, it just depends on the events we were able to get to and the relationships we created. And then what really started to happen is after you raised, we raised on our first deal, um, we raised 500 and I think $45,000. So, you know, now we raised 17, 18, 20 million, but on our first deal, I remember being very, unsure and concerned of how is this going to work? Is this really going to work? Is anyone going to want to invest? And if you have a great business plan and you have a great asset and you can see the future when you're a real estate investor, if you've been doing it long enough, you'll be able to see a likely future based on the numbers, based off of the sub market, based off of your debt. And when you can see that clearly and you can show that picture to your investors, it's easy for them to say, well, yeah, I want to invest, you know, I'll take $50,000 and, and take a risk with you guys. You're putting money in the deal. You believe in it. You don't get paid unless we get paid. Sure. Let's, let's do this together. So that's how we raise capital slowly with uh, great relationships and just performing on the deals that you have. So Dan, I'm a little bit older than you and have seen the real estate market go through so many different cycles. Yeah. Uh, there's a great book that every real estate person needs to read a man in full about Atlanta real estate market. How does your market or how does your model get threatened? Do you feel that it's safer because you're dealing with residential and people got to live somewhere in the end? Uh, or what are your thoughts on what could threaten your model? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what can threaten the model? multifamily is over leveraging deals with a variable rate debt, which is what is threatening the model on a lot of these sellers right now, which is an opportunity. If you can be a buyer in this market, you have the opportunity to get property that's at a 10, 15, 20% discount from where it was in October, 2021 or, you know, late 2021. So if you have the reputation and the understanding and uh, are in the business and you have capital or cash right now on the sidelines, we're seeing deals with low leverage fixed debt that work and you couldn't buy a deal in 2021 with low leverage fixed debt. It wouldn't have worked. Your returns wouldn't have been high enough. Pricing was far too high. So now when you're getting into the game on these each deal and you're coming in with 50, 60% leverage, 65% leverage, and the deal still works, you're in a pretty safe position. But that would be the biggest thing I would say is, is too aggressively underwriting deals, being too optimistic of the future, and then over leveraging the deal. All right. Tell us about your book and why someone would want to passively invest. Yeah, it's... You can grab a copy of the book at our website. It's just granitetowersequitygroup.com. And there's a tab on the top. This is ebook. It's four steps to successful passive investing. And it shares what we think are the most important things to know and be aware of as a passive investor. Um, and when you click for that book or click for that link, you will put in your email and phone number and you can be a part of our database and you can start to see future deals that we're bringing out to our investors. We would love to hop on a phone call with each and every one of your listeners that would like to learn more about us. So, you know, my cell phone number is 320-493-1523. My email is dan at granitetowersequitygroup.com. Um, so that, that's the way to go about it. And, um, we can, we can get to know each other better from there, share, 
a little bit more about our company if you have any more questions and start to see future deals that come through our pipeline. Fantastic. Dan, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. And uh, I hope you'll come back when you get a billion dollars under management. <laughs> We're looking forward to that as well. All right. And we'll be right back. I am very excited to introduce my next guest. His name is Joe Meyer. We are going to discuss the intersection of artificial intelligence and NLP, natural language processing. Natural language processing has been studied for decades now, and many people swear by it as a way to change behavior and change habits all through the words that we use. Joe has been studying the intersection of NLP and AI and at his company where he works now, which is Erudite, they're doing amazing things when using your conversations, the conversations your employees have in Slack, I think, and other places like that, and producing insight data about your culture. Joe, welcome. How are you doing? Hey, I'm good. Uh, thanks for having me. All right. So is that a fair understanding of what Erudite is doing, taking my conversations and giving me data on my culture? Yeah. So essentially what we do is uh, there's a lot of unstructured text and uh, things of that nature within communication platforms and organizations. And uh, that's actually a very rich data source to understand. Uh, things like organizational dynamics and organizational culture. Uh, so what we're doing is using AI to automatically analyze those things um, and provide insight back to uh, people within organizations like managers, uh, business leaders, and even employees. Uh, so that's kind of what we do at a high level. All right. Am I, is Slack one of the sources? Where do you get the data? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we have uh, a lot of different diverse data sources. Uh, so things like Slack, uh, the Google Suite, so uh, Teams as well. Uh, so we kind of uh, combine those different data sources, uh, more kind of like the uh, more popular communication platforms that you see within corporations today. All right. And then what kind of data points pop out of that? So give me an example of what you would learn. Yeah, absolutely. So um, our analysis is, gonna, is going to occur at kind of like the granular level. Uh, but by the time that we feed the data back to organizations, um, we're kind of at the aggregated form. Um, so we have kind of like departmental level information. Uh, for example, the marketing department is struggling along these axes. Um, and we have a lot of different uh, variables, I guess you could call them, uh, that we're interested in uh, that kind of overall deal with organizational health and employee wellness, uh, for example, burnout or stress um, or engagement. Uh, so at the end of the day, we're kind of reporting, uh, hey, uh, Department X has 73% uh, engagement. Uh, according to these benchmarks, that's a little bit troublesome. Uh, so you should probably consider some kind of uh, targeted intervention. Um, in that department. Uh, so that's kind of an example of uh, the information that we sent back. And how do the employees feel about being monitored like this? 
uh, obviously they're told. Uh, what is their response? They just don't care? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a very important question that comes up a lot, of course. Um, I think a good way to look at it is that we're uh, doing these analyses for good, right? Uh, we're, we're trying to unearth uh, different problems within the organization and help uh, managers and team leaders uh, kind of understand uh, these different dynamics and where they can improve. Um, so the information uh, has a good purpose, right? Um, as opposed to uh, different like nefarious uh, technologies that uh, don't really have the uh, end user's uh, best interest in mind. Um, and I think it's also important to consider uh, that uh, a, lot of, a lot of this data really isn't private anyway. Uh, so uh, w when you're in a company, of course, you're probably not going to want to uh, say a bunch of crazy things uh, with your emails because ultimately uh, you're dealing with uh, companies like uh, property. Um, so I think that's uh, something to consider as well. Um, and of course, there's a, a lot of uh, uh, use. Can you messaging. explain? Can you explain NLP better than I did? Anyone can. Can you do it, though, yeah. please? Yeah, absolutely. So we can kind of dive into it a little bit. Uh, so NLP stands for Natural Language Processing, and at a high level, what we're doing is uh, we're taking text and using different algorithms uh, or rule-based systems to analyze that language. Um, the idea is that, uh, like I mentioned before, uh, there's a massive amount of unstructured information out there. Uh, for example, consider the internet. Uh, there's a very large amount of text there, or something like Wikipedia, or books, or communication platforms. Uh, so NLP is analyze those things uh, for many different purposes. Uh, for example, or kind of, uh, we call it clustering, uh, so automatically making uh, kind of buckets of information, which is going to be uh, really useful uh, for many different use cases. Uh, for example, you can consider, um, let's say we have a database of 100,000 sales calls, and we'd like to understand uh, what are the different themes that arise, and also what, uh, what's kind of connected to uh, conversion or some kind of sales purchase. Uh, so a technology like NLP is able to uh, kind of parse through that, that information and uh, make predictions and kind of bucket uh, that all of that unstructured data. Um, and of course, one of the uh, most uh, popular use cases of NLP tech uh, currently is uh, something like ChatGPT, uh, which at the end of the day is either a single NLP model or a mixture of uh, many different NLP models. There's kind of debate on that topic right now um, that's able to uh, generate text. Uh, so generative AI has is, is, uh, become extremely popular and there's a lot of different uh, really interesting use cases uh, in that. So that, that's kind of uh, one of the more uh, most recent examples of NLP. So when we talk about artificial intelligence and NLP, it seems to me when you put the two of those together, the universe should explode into a black hole or something. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of uh, negative connotations uh, out there about AI and NLP and uh, technologies like uh, ChatGPT. Um, but it, at least uh, currently, um, I, I think a lot of the, the uh, algorithms and models are being used for good. And um, it's kind of like a, a pivotal moment, I think, uh, with humans at work and 
uh, a lot of industries in general where uh, it'll be very interesting to see uh, how these uh, technologies can uh, help humanity. Um, I think as we speak, uh, almost every single industry within America and the world can potentially be disrupted by AI. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds. Uh, but there is definitely a lot of uh, fear out there. And I guess that is kind of tied to that uh, major change uh, because uh, with thing, things so dynamic, it's only natural to be, I guess, afraid and uh, fearful of what that might mean to human experience and also uh, experience at work. Um, but I guess I'm an optimist um, in terms of uh, how things will change. So what happens if you use the principles of NLP to respond to AI questions and prompts? Sure. Uh, sorry, could you kind of clarify that a little bit? So well, I, are you kind of asking I, I how don't really know. I don't, know, I don't understand the question myself. What, you know, it seems <laughs> to me that NLP describes a way to control the other end of the conversation, right? So if we do that uh, with artificial intelligence, I don't know. Again, I, I'm just getting back to my black hole theory here sure. again, that somehow sure. that the two of these together produce just unknowable consequences. Yeah. Um, I, I think there's a lot of concern for uh, consequences with uh, NLP and AI in general right now. Um, there's definitely a lot of talk about uh, regulation and uh, halting research and things like that uh, to be sure that we're kind of not doing a net uh, negative to humanity. Um, so I think that's definitely really important to consider. Um, so yeah, I think those conversations are great to have, um, especially when we're dealing with kind of an exponential rate of change uh, in research and innovation and adoption. Um, so yeah, those those conversations are uh, great to have. I'm not sure if that directly answers your question, uh, but we can it kind does. of dive yeah. into Okay, I, I don't know. I, mean, I don't know how to ask my question any better. So how does this change or what are the business applications that stem from this? So erudite is using it for helping with my culture. It seems like that there would be a lot of other uses of NLP monitoring the conversations that are had you know, with your customers or monitoring a call center or something like that yeah. as well. Yeah, absolutely. We can kind of dive into a couple different applications. Um, I think a call center is a great example. And um, I think it's been thrown around as one of the uh, more likely industries to be disrupted by AI, but also um, assisted as well. Um, so if you kind of think about uh, the ability to uh, automate call centers, uh, I think that's definitely on the table. And I've seen uh, recent videos of automated agents that um, have uh, human-like voices and can kind of uh, hold a sales call or uh, kind of a customer service call. Uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, but at the same time, there's also uh, the opportunity for assistance as well. For example, if we're able to do uh, real-time monitoring of call centers and understand uh, what's more likely to lead to something like customer satisfaction um, or if there is a uh, very difficult question or an extremely uh, irritated customer, they get real-time recommendations in terms of um, alleviating whatever they're concerned about, um, as well as kind of uh, after the fact, uh, looking at kind of aggregate calls and understanding, uh, for example, hey, uh, call center X uh, is having these issues. 
Um, it seems like customer engagement is extremely low here, um, or on the other end, the uh, call person actually has extremely uh, low engagement on average within this department or region, et cetera. Uh, so I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, but I think the business applications are very large. Um, I, in terms of a prediction lens uh, where we're using uh, text information to predict things, um, I like to look at it as if we have a signal within the text um, or some kind of pattern in terms of a variable we're interested in, we can likely make predictions. Um, so one other uh, business use case could be something like search. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, startups and companies that are interested in uh, kind of augmenting, uh, let's say, business intelligence. Uh, for example, uh, we may have a 50 to 70-year-old organization and they've migrated across uh, all of these different databases to collect their information. Uh, so now we have uh, an insane amount of uh, text data. We have documents, uh, we have reports, uh, we have policies, we have emails, uh, all of these different sources of text information. And uh, what companies will do is create an intelligent AI solution uh, that can actually search through these things and answer questions. Uh, for example, um, a question may be, uh, hey, uh, what is our policy regarding uh, X, Y, and Z? And uh, AI is able to uh, search through all of that unstructured information and retrieve maybe the top five most relevant results. Uh, so that's going to save a lot, of, a lot of time in search of, in terms of just searching for this information, uh, just kind of sifting through online documents and uh, papers and all of these different things. Uh, so there's a lot of different uh, interesting applications that are out there. Uh, I think one more thing that I'll mention in terms of business use case, uh, maybe something like uh, the medical field. Um, so, of course, on the, the positive side uh, in this case as well, uh, where I've, I've heard of different startups being interested in uh, predicting things like depression or schizophrenia um, or anxiety, things of that nature, uh, based on uh, text. Uh, so in this case, we may have uh, interviews for patients and we're able to uh, give them recommendations on uh, maybe different depression medications or whether there is a presence or absence of depression. Uh, so I think there's a lot of very, very uh, diverse use cases. And uh, as we kind of uh, see NLP becoming more uh, widespread and adopted, um, I think companies like this will continue to pop up, which is uh, very interesting right now. That is a great use case I've not thought of, Joe. That's uh very smart and makes a lot of sense. Uh, if someone were monitoring my text, I'm sure they could learn a lot about me. How do we find out more, follow online, and continue to watch what the industry is doing? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so you can uh, check out Erudite's website. Uh, you should be able to type in uh, erudite.com. Uh, uh, and you can also throw AI in there because I'm not sure the exact uh, URL. Uh, and I think it's not AI. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for uh, clarifying. Yeah. Uh, and you can also check out my uh, LinkedIn. Um, my name's uh, Joseph Meyer or Joe Meyer on there. Um, and we'd definitely be uh, happy to continue the conversation about AI, especially with the intersection of uh, people and analytics. Fantastic. Joe, thank you so much for being with us. Great insight. And I uh, will hope that the industry doesn't terminate or all of us. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, let's hope so. I'm an optimist, so I, I think it's going to work out and be very interesting. And we're out of time for today, but we're back tomorrow. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Bye now.